Thinking about um, all the things that God has put on our plate. It can become overwhelming to think about the various responsibilities he's given us. And I want to revisit the concept of balance and really emphasize one of the great stewardships, perhaps the greatest stewardship that he's allowed us to, to, um, to shoulder. Everyone here is different. You have a different set of responsibilities because of the unique situation God has you in. But we're also, there's a sameness about us too because we're all God's image bearers. As believers in Jesus, we're made new in Christ. And everything about us is really supposed to be about him. That's how it's supposed to be. It isn't just supposed to be that way for me. I'm the pastor. You know, well, those, those preachers, they are all about the word, but we can't really be. No, it's, it's your spiritual life. And everything about you and me is supposed to really be about him. And that's where we're going to find balance when we talk about the various responsibilities. <clears throat> you know, every sin we commit is a choice to disobey God in one way or another. There's no sin you could list. You can think of that the scriptures reveal as sin. And sin is actually a really tough topic to get hold of because what, what ultimately is it? How would we define it? And there are lots of approaches that you could derive. That the, it's a major topic in the scripture. For example, in the Garden of Eden, the original sin was the transgression of God's command not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the first, that's where sin entered the human race. We're told in Romans chapter 5 that sin entered through Adam. Adam's sin when he took that fruit from his wife. You can say, well, the woman ate first. Yes, but sin came to all of us through Adam, according to the scriptures. And so, so what's the difference? Well, there's something about man and the transmission of our sinful nature through man. But, but the first sin, before we get into all that metaphysics of, of sin, original sin, the first sin was God said, don't eat from the tree, and then they ate from the tree. There's nothing in the text to suggest that there was inherent immorality in eating that specific type of fruit. It doesn't say if you eat from that tree, you will have transgressed righteousness in itself. Some things you do are inherently evil, like murder, where you're clearly destroying God's image bearer. That's Genesis 9, 6. It's clearly the issue is that God has made you to bear his image, and then you're destroying that, that delegation. And so there's, there's inherent immorality. The, the text doesn't say that if you eat this particular kind of fruit, it's an unclean fruit and it makes you unclean or something. It doesn't say that. It just says God said not to do it. It's very clear that the simple prohibition where God said, you don't do that, that's what made it sin. And when they did it, they were directly transgressing his enactment not to do it. So in other words, sin, the first thing we know about sin is it's disobedience of God, period. Disobedience of God. Are you with me? Where we, we, God said do this and then we don't do this. There's another form of obedience that's not quite as, it's not, it's, it's, I think it's just, as, just as, as disobedient, but it's not the same direction. When God says don't do it and you do it, don't you touch that, that's a transgression by commission, I did the thing. But what's the other side? When God says, do this, and then I don't do it. That's another form of disobedience. It doesn't seem as obvious. It doesn't seem perhaps as, as in your face. You, you did the thing I told you not to do. is a little bit harsh, more harsh than you didn't do the thing that I told you to do. But in both cases, you have the volition of God, his will, his desire. You have the volition of the person and their, their cross purposes. You're saying no to God. And that's relational. It's personal. And so see how you, you, wait a second. Eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was personal. Wasn't it mechanical? Wasn't it functional? He just ate, from, he took the tree, the fruit from her hand and then and ate. Isn't that, isn't that functional, mechanical? Well, it isn't just that. That action that you took, that functional, well, he saw that his wife had eaten, so he looked at her and then it's personal because the personal God had said not to do it. 
And so that transgression of his volition of what he wants is a transgression of that personal aspect of God, that capacity to make choices. This is the origin of sin in human history. And we have a little bit of insight into the sin that began before human sin. In the angelic realm, in Ezekiel 28, there was iniquity found in you, it says, talking to, um, to Satan in the person of uh, one of the kings. Um, I believe that's Tyre in Ezekiel 28. And so there was iniquity found in you. You were this glorious uh, angelic being, but there was sin found in you. And it doesn't talk about um, a transgression he made. It talks about an attitude that he had. One of the the things God hates is a haughty eye. Haughty eyes in in, uh, Proverbs 8, this arrogance, this pride, this inherent uh, sort of sin. And these two things go hand in hand. God does tell us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think right? And then we do. God tells us to humble ourselves, and we don't. We're arrogant. These are, these are different ways of talking about the same problem of S-I-N. And I just want to say that however you slice it, whether it's a disobedience of God by transgression, by, by commission, or by omission, whether it's a disobedience of God by an inherent uh, attitude like arrogance or pride, these things are choices, they're choices that people make, and that's why volition has to sort of take center stage when we talk about stewardships. <clears throat> One of the great complaints people have in work, in their business, is when they have been given a job by a higher authority. The boss says, you, at your level, you do this job. This is your task. You have this team, this time, this budget to do this job. And you say, Okay. Got it. I understand the mission. Wait a second. Come back later to the boss. Say, um, on, on the second page, it says you want it this way. Is it exactly this way or did you want these other possible options? Oh, you're right. I didn't clarify yet. I want that exactly this way. And so now I have the specification. This is what you want me, my team, my budget to do with the time you've given me. And so you start formulating your plan and you start briefing your team and you start marshalling things to get things ready and then um, you, have, you have your timeline set up, and then you have your schedule, and then the boss shows up at 10 o'clock the next day, three hours into execution of the, of the project, and says, let's have a meeting. I want to, uh, to give you the update on what I expect, and we're going to also supervise and see how this is going. And you say, I, I can't, I, uh, you just wasted my whole day. You just wasted an entire day of work by jumping into this, and you won't let me do. And the boss says, oh, you're, you're wasting time. And then he says, uh, you have to come, you have to come uh, sit down with me and we're going to talk through how to lead and how to, how to <laughs> and he gets into your stuff and he starts micromanaging you and you can't do the thing that you were told. He says, well, I just, you know, um, I don't think this is working out. So then he ties your hands and says, okay, I gave you this set of instructions, but now I'm going to further develop the plan for you to execute. And he takes over and he does your job for you. And then you have no role. You have no ability to decide because the boss just made all the decisions for you. And so there you are, you're just vestigial. You're just filling a spot. And the performance review six months later is, you know, you're really not adding much to the team, right? And, it, and you had a plan, you tried, you, were, you knew what you were doing. It's that he didn't let you choose what you should need to choose. He didn't let you govern what he had delegated you to govern. This is, this is how we're dealing with God. He's not a micromanager. He doesn't come in and then force all the decisions. He says, these are the, this is the specification. This is what I expect from you. And then you have the capacity to make the choices to do the things, but you're going to have to use the resources wisely to do them. And, he, and then he waits and sees how we do. That's how God deals with us. You think he's a bad boss? You think he's an inefficient manager, doesn't know how to lead, doesn't know how to, to set his, you know, give ownership to his delegated uh, subordinates and then let them go execute? Of course he does. He knows exactly how to do this. And it all comes down to our volition. And last time we said, what are the various aspects of our volition? What, what things are we given responsibility for? And we, we kind of listed them, if you might remember. We said one of them, the most valuable one in one sense is time. And it's, it's, it's not more valuable than God's word or my relationship with God or, my, you know, or your physical body because these are all interrelated things. But time is one measure of your life and it's fast disappearing. It's that resource that God gives you and you don't know how much of it he gives you. 
You know how much time God gives you in this life? Here's what I know. I don't know how many days you get. I know that it's enough to do what he wants you to do. That's how much. And when you think of it that way, that'll totally rearrange your entire life. Because now it's not about me doing what I want to do and have my thing. And It's not about me. I've only got one shot. I'm going to take my shot. It's not about that. It's about God gave me a shot to do what he wants me to do. And I'm not going to waste that opportunity that he's delegated to me. So it's time. The revelation of God, I hope you understand what I mean by this. I'm talking about the Bible, the word of God that we have that we're certain that God said. There are lots of words out there people say that they have from God, but this is one thing we're we're certain God said. Once you've finished exhausting all the riches of God's actual revelation, maybe we could start exploring the questionable stuff. But I'd rather just stay in the word because I don't think I'll ever fully exhaust what it's saying. So revelation from God is a stewardship. This is, a, this is a different way of thinking about the Bible than most Christians think about it. It's a, it's a brutal taskmaster, the Bible. If you're supposed to read it and understand it, that's, I can read it. They taught me to read, I can read it. But then to understand it, it's not like reading a novel. It's not like reading a history book or whatever you're interested in reading. It's challenging. And it's challenging for a lot of reasons. But it's been challenging the whole time. It was challenging to the second century uh, Greek reading, Greek speaking believers that were studying the Bible back then. It's always been a challenge. But revelation is not just a challenge, it's a stewardship. It's a sacred trust that God has delegated to you. Hey, this is what you can know about me. We can know because He told us. And so it's amazing when you think about this awesome delegation God has given you. You think about the people, the persecuted church around the world, where, for example, the, the, the news story in the last year, in 2023, there's a family in North Korea that were found to have a Bible or fragments of a Bible, and the adults were sentenced to death, and the children were supposedly interned for life or something. They had to go be reeducated or whatever it was, and, and it was just this rumor that kind of came out of North Korea that... that there seemed to be some substance to it that a family had been found with a Bible, a legacy Bible from back before the communist takeover of North Korea. And, um, and we've got Bibles stacking up everywhere here in our culture, but it's a sacred trust and we don't value it, perhaps as we should. And I think that there's a, an issue in terms of authority when you talk about the Bible. The Bible has to be correctly handled. That's the Apostle Paul to Timothy, rightly handling the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. The way you deal with it really matters. If you treat it like, a regu- like just any book, that, uh, opinions of humans, if you treat it like that, you're mishandling the text because it's not that. You're doing something that's a violence to it. If you are allowing humans who have attempted to handle it to tell you that this is the way to handle it without reference to its own internal authority, that's a misuse too. The, 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 the people that were interpreting the Old Testament in Jesus' day, the authorities, the, the people, the professors, were called by uh, John the Baptist a brood of vipers who told you to flee the coming wrath, who told you to come. And, and Jesus called them uh, uh, lots of things, but the big foil, the opposition to the coming of Jesus to his own people were the religious leaders who were the caretakers of the revelation. And Jesus said they were taking the traditions of men and using them to contradict the word of God. And we learn if we watch the scriptures, that, no, there's a, an authority here that's higher than the traditions that people have assigned to it. So when the early church uh, desert fathers, as some would call them, when the the, the patristic guys or the, the apostolic fathers, first couple centuries of the church age, when they're saying things like, um, um, if your right eye causes you to sin, cast it from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut, cut it off because it's better to enter uh, you know, heaven or enter the kingdom with your uh, missing an eye, missing a hand maimed than to enter into the lake of fire with your whole body, that kind of thing. The, um, the patristic interpretation that this means that when you have body parts in the body, meaning church participants who are sinful, that cause the church family to sin, that you're, Jesus is teaching to cut them off and remove them from you. When they, whoa, 
Um, how did you do that? Well, they, in other places, the, the church is the body of Christ, and we're all members of one another. So if we're talking about body parts in, in Matthew 5, Jesus must be thinking of the other places where the apostles of Jesus talk about body parts. And you're off to the races with a thing Jesus isn't even talking about. And it's interesting that they made that correlation, but it's not what Jesus is talking about. And see what I mean? Like the handling the Bible is a tough thing. It's, it's tough because you don't want to put your speculation on the text. You don't want to read your culture into the text. You want to understand what God is actually saying. And this is the discipline of hermeneutics. One of my favorite uh, criticisms of dispensationalism is that they use hermeneutics. Um, this, is, this is somebody that doesn't read that would say that. They use hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the discipline of interpretation. It's just the study of interpretation. And the way we use our definition of hermeneutics are the rules you use to interpret a text. And the way we want to interpret your text that you write is the way we'll interpret the Word of God. We'll take you, the author, as the, the one who originates the ideas, and we'll try to understand your ideas as, the, as a, an act of communication between you and the reader. That's the way we'll treat a text. And so God is speaking through the apostles and prophets. And so we'll take what they're saying as what they intended to say and what God is inspiring them to say. And we'll go for their intended meaning. Just as one example of um, hermeneutics, of, of the way we handle the text. But it's a sacred trust. And so I think you should know, for example, as just believers that are not pastoring churches, you should know that the way we handle the Bible is we want to understand what the author means. We're seeking the, what they call the authorial intent of what he wrote. You should know that. Now, there are a lot of other things. That's like the title of the book that we believe in authorial intent. A lot of other things about hermeneutics that you probably don't want to get into first hour Sunday after the snowstorm. But, but you should know that there's a right way to handle the text. Like, for example, if God is the one inspiring the words written by the apostles and prophets, that's what Paul says. If God is the one breathing out the word of God through the pen of the, of the writers, if that's how this works, then, then it's not just a book with human authors and their intended meanings. It's a holy book. It's a divine book that God has construed, and it's, and it, it's, it's got to be read with that sense. And so the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy comes to, to, to play. There's another one. There's another consideration that... Um, when you have a passage that's difficult or when you have something that um, in isolation might have a certain sense, should I isolate a verse from the Bible or should I read it in its context, read it as a paragraph, as a constituent of the actual message I'm reading? We have our little proof verses that define our theology. All of, the, all of Israel will be saved. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. When does it say that and who's it talking about and what context does that happen? Um, so the, the challenge obviously of revelation is to study it and, um, to be this way, understand, to, to think this way about the Bible, you would have to build schoolhouses that mass educate people to be able to read. You would have to teach people critical thinking skills. Let no one enter here who doesn't love geometry, um, <laughs> but you would have to you'd have to teach people logic and reasoning and um, and literature and all these things you have to academically train people as on mass to to think this way about the bible as the rank and file that we're all handling the text you would have to build institutions that specialize so that you would have local uh, specialists who could who could help people through grammar and talk things through because they they focused on it you would have to have you would have to have some sort of indoctrination centers that would that would so strengthen those specialists those those people that are focused on the text that they become able to handle the text in in its original language we'll call them seminaries you would have to have what god gave us historically, circumstantially, through the march of the West out of the quagmire of the Dark Ages, or I should say the, 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 its shackles to traditionalism and, and, and all, the, all the, the, the vagaries of a misguided ecclesiology. I'm trying not to say what's obviously clear. <laughs> 
you would have to take people out of the traditionalism that the, the, the Catholic clergy is the church and you come to the church, we'll tell you how it is. We'll give you your wafer. We're the church. You can come to the church. We'd have to get past that, get back to the Bible and then climb out of the sludge using an every, a Bible in every man's hand approach with, the, with its concomitant uh, uh, Reformation work ethic, back to, the, back to work, back to the Bible. And then you would end up with a civilization that had massive literacy and critical thinking skills and, um, and ready access to the scriptures. And, and that's where you're living. That's the culture you're living in now, which it's all there for you. It's all present for you. We have the seminaries. We have the specialists. We have meaning. We have people that can walk you through. I'm really not sure what's going on with the participles. How many times have they all told me this? You've walked up, pastor, kind of talked to you. Yes, I don't understand the participles in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. I just don't see how these participles are relating to the central thought of a finite verb in the passage. So can we talk about that? I mean, how many times have I had that conversation, Right? I don't spend a lot of time dealing in that technical material with you. I really don't. But, but I can, and I, I'd like to if you'd like to, and that kind of thing. But I'm just saying we have everything at our disposal, and here the civilization that was built by Christians to have massive literacy, technical thinking, critical reasoning skills, and the specialists who can uh, locally. You, there should be a, a, a pastor in every church that could walk you through these matters. Talk about hermeneutics all day. And... and and, and advance your study and your development and encouragement. And every little church should probably be more like a seminary than it is. But I'm just saying, we have it, but we don't, we don't have it. The culture doesn't want it. It's moved on. The culture that built what we're living in doesn't exist anymore. And so, uh, why am I saying it? Because this is what the Bible calls for. It calls for a radical attention to the various disciplines of hermeneutics and Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and, and grammar and systematic theology. And, and, and that's, where's the balance? If God give, gave us this, I could just, I guess we're just gonna all go to seminary. No, no, but you're gonna handle the text carefully. You're gonna think about it and say, this is our focus. We don't think of suffering as a delegation from God, but if we did, if we'll start to think of it that way, it'll help. It'll help ease the pain. I mean, it doesn't make it hurt less, but it helps me understand there's a purpose in it and it strengthens me to handle it. That the suffering God lets me endure is something that he is actually putting on my plate. He's saying, trust me, walk by my spirit through this hardship. The people in your life are not a distraction to you getting done what you want to do. They are the mission. They are the the whole thing Jesus gave his church to do is the development of people. Of course, you think I'm going to take you to Matthew chapter 28 to say that that's what Jesus told the church to do. And indeed it is where he's telling the disciples before his ascension to go make more disciples. But um, for those that don't like that, um, it's okay. We could look in, for example, in Ephesians 4, uh, where Paul says that the gifted communicators, those with communication gifts, themselves become gifts to the body of Christ that the Lord has given. And they exist not to be the church, but to edify, to equip, to build up the church. He says, and he gave in verse 11 of chapter four of Ephesians, some as apostles, prophets, the pastors, or sorry, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, the building up the body of Christ. You hear it? The reason for the communicators of God's word is for the people to do what? To be equipped, to equip the saints for the work of service. Service to whom? Well, service to God. And how do we serve God? Well, six of the Ten Commandments to God, God gave Israel are how they would treat people. To the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. See, it's the people that are the mission. The service is to the building up of the body. And the body is not a physical building. It's you. It's the people. And the goal doesn't stop until we're there, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That body of truth, which is to be believed because it is absolutely trustworthy the, up to, the, to the unity of the faith. 
of the knowledge of the Son of God. Who knows the Son of God? Who knows of the Son of God? Not dogs, not cats, not flowers, not trees, not the atmosphere. People. This is about people. The mission and the equipping is for the people. To the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How do people take on the character, the nature, the stature, the fullness of Christ? Well, they're in the Word, and someone leads them along, and someone edifies and builds them up. This is what all the saints are supposed to be doing, apparently, in Ephesians 4.12. People are a massive responsibility. Not just your kids, that you have to keep them alive as best you can and train them and get them a shot at having a life. It's more, obviously, than just your basic subsistence. Children that grow up and don't go to heaven, that's a... That's a that's horrible. It's unthinkable when they uh, move from this phase of life to the next. <clears throat> the people are a sacred trust that God has given to us, and we have varying responsibilities regarding different people. You have a different deal with your wife or husband than you have with your kids. You have a different deal with your kids than with other people's kids, but you do have something involving you with other people's kids. And your relationships with your coworkers are different than your relationships with your parents. So the different types of stewardship of people come into view here. But so there's a difference. Everyone you encounter, there's a little bit different shade of how you're responsible to God. But there's a sameness. Every one of those people needs Jesus. They need to know Jesus as their Savior. They need to put on Christ and live the spiritual life. You see what I'm saying? So fleshing this out... Um, really, people ends up being a huge, huge responsibility. Your own physical body is a delegation, as we said. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but it's certainly your health, your, you know, your nutrition, your rest, your exercise, and everything you do with your brain. <laughs> now, that body just got very important. It isn't just that physical exercise helps us a little. It's that your body and your brain is how you worship God. And your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit resides in your, in your body in 1 Corinthians 6. The work that you've been given to do is a duty. It's a sacred delegation. But we get messed up about this too. How do I get messed up about work as a, as a delegation, as a duty? I start thinking of work as an end in itself. That's what I do. I start thinking of the boss that I have at work as the boss. I start thinking of what you know that it's just it's it, i've got to do this because i've got to feed my family i've got to do this because i committed to i got to do this because my name is on the line and i don't make mistakes i get it done that kind of you know pride and in every case we've missed that i'm working as god's agent with god's power in god's work that he's given me and we're disconnecting ourselves from the creator in our work and it's very common it's very easy to do this this happens at school too. Parents will sometimes find themselves uh, facing children who say, but my teacher said I have to do X, Y, and Z, so we're gonna have to do X, Y, and Z. And you say, um, well, that's great, but um, we, we are not working for the teacher as a, as a household. We've delegated part of your training that we're doing to the teacher and, um, and you kind of get that confused. And that's just an illustration of how we get with work and God. We forget that God's really the boss. We forget that the work is really a duty that he's emplaced on us. We forget that we're working really for him and that it's to please him. And, um, and there's the missed balance, misplaced. In other words, my relationship with God solves all of these. And of course, we said property, your stuff. The stuff, whatever it is the physical, material stuff. I don't care about stuff. I'm not materialistic. Well, everybody gets materialistic at some point. Jesus in Matthew 6 talks about having a roof over your head. Talks about wearing clothing as opposed to being naked. We are all materialistic in that sense at some point where actually the physical stuff really matters. Thankful that we didn't lose power based on the hype for the weather, like you got to get weather clicks or whatever. This, 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 uh, apocalyptic snowstorm, right? That has taken us down. We, you know, I can't believe y'all slid around on the roads that are just clear as can be out there. Anyway, um, the, 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 the idea of the stuff has, um, 
has has to be considered in terms of subsistence, in terms of your life, your livelihood. If we had, what I was trying to get to with the snowstorm is we had lost power. We would be all very materialistic as we figure out how to heat our homes without, without electricity. Well, I don't have electricity. I've got, we don't heat with electric, we heat with oil. You have an electric fired oil burner. You know, y'all thought all that through. Um, some of you who aren't up here, you know, oil burner. Yeah, we burn diesel in our homes. And they call it heating oil, but chemically it's, it's, it's the same thing as, as diesel. It just has a dye that you're not supposed to use it in your car because it's taxed differently. So we're all diesel-powered homes, uh, heated homes. Um, and we, some of us will uh, op- augment or replace that with something else. But, um, but what if you don't have electricity to, to heat your home? Well, I, we don't need electricity for, for air conditioning. Well, you don't, but you need it for heat or something. You need to do something for heat. And uh, in a lot of our homes are on wells, so we need it for water. We get real materialistic when the toilet won't flush. We get, we get concerned about the physical, material stuff around us. It becomes a priority when you, get, you can't get water in your home. And so um, when we talk about property, and this is the problem with Marx in part. When you talk about property and we're going to rearrange the society and force this you know, governmental uh, top-down uh, economic thing, what you end up with is, is horror and tragedy. You end up with the, um, the Great Leap Forward, they called it, in China that killed millions of their own people, starving to death, with, despite the, the crushing weight of the red Chinese government and the threat of torture and all the things from the, that style regime, there are lots of rumors and stories that have come up from the 1950s and 60s or at least 1950s, of people uh, uh, eating one another, eating those that had died because they're starving so badly. Those that had already starved to death still had some nutrition to provide. And, um, and see, when we talk about property, we're not talking about getting rich, like if you became a, 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 an elected official. <laughs> we, mean, we mean just basic subsistence, the basic necessities of life. And the balance of all of these is easily lost when we lose sight of God because the most important stewardship, wait, I don't want that. I don't want to animate that. Yeah, I do. The most important stewardship is our relationship with God. It's the priority that, that balances everything else, that puts everything else into its perspective. Your relationship with God, which is fed by your uh, attention to God's revelation, really puts all of these ideas in their place and secures you because I can ask questions that make me feel uncomfortable about every one of these topics. What if my suffering is, what if, what if I'm going to have a, a, a horrible crushing disease or something? What if I'm going to lose something or someone that I, I don't want to lose and I have to face that? What if um, I've been wasting time? What if I, the work that I'm doing um, it doesn't bring forth the product that I want it to bring forth? All that regret, all that concern that you might feel insecure about that you can do um, certainly about your stuff and, and uh, property includes the, the money in the investment accounts, right? Um, <clears throat> your position at work and the way you're considered by others and how that works with your promotion or not promotion. All of these things are areas where you and I are very insecure because we're not in control. And what we try to do a lot of times is stick our foot out on the sled and try to control how things are going to go, and we can't. You can't control how you're perceived at work. You can control the work that you do. You can control how you treat other people. You can't control what people do with that, right? And, and it's hard, and we're insecure about all of these things can be causes for insecurity about us, uh, for ourselves. Uh, the, the people relationships, oh, have you ever gotten in sideways with somebody? You go to try to communicate to fix it. It makes it worse. And the more you say to the person, the worse they m- misinterpret you. And it's like adding water to a grease fire. Just don't put water there. That's going to flare up. Just got to let that grease fire alone. Maybe suck out the oxygen from it. But don't put water on it. That kind of thing. The, every one of these areas is a problem of great insecurity for us. And that's why you get unbalanced. That's why you end up with anxiety. That's why we end up with trouble. But if we get hold of God's revelation as the priority functionally, the functional priority for my day is to hear from God. 
opening our hearts to what God thinks and says and thinking on what he's told us. If we take a, a crib, a, a, a note from uh, Psalm 1 and we meditate on the instruction of God day and night, I believe that what happens is all of these areas of responsibility of delegated authority, uh, they all take their place. How does that work? Well, let's just take the one example of work. Things go bad at work. It's not my fault, but I'm being blamed for it. Um, You can keep your head when all those about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, right? You're, You're having trouble at work, and it's not because you made a mistake, but you're being blamed for it. And you're not perfect either, and you have made mistakes, but this one isn't yours, and you're just facing this thing in there. And you don't want to be bitter about the way you're being treated, but their bitterness can easily set in, and all the things you can imagine with an insecure situation at work. Well, what you're worried about is that you're going to lose your job, you've lost your status, you don't have a good reputation, all the things that you stand to lose. And you want to make a list of those things and then to connect them back to God, your relationship with God. Have I lost my relationship with God? Have I lost my status with him? Has he stopped saying that he would provide for my needs? Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added to you. And so the relationship with God is something that you want to bring to bear on the, the crisis, whatever it is, and ask these questions. And this requires you to think And when you're in an emotionally compromised situation, it's the last thing you feel like doing. It's like when you're angry in a a heated discussion, a heated argument, and you get angry, all of a sudden you get very smart in your own mind that you can solve this problem if you could just continue to talk to the person. The last thing you need to do is keep talking in anger. You need to stop talking and wait until all that physical stuff is gone and we can reason together. But in the moment, no, we held on. Let's let's talk. We're going to finish this. Right? I'm going to get the things that I want to say said. I'm going to tear down as much as I can tear down. And that, that kind of problem um, is, is a, an illustration of when we don't seek God and a relationship with him and we're worried about work. And here's what it sounds like. Ah, oh, that God stuff. I know God. Yeah, whatever. But I've got stuff to do at work. And the answer's right there. The, the water is right there for you to drink and you're starving, you're uh, you're dying of thirst. God has an opinion about your success at work. He has an idea about what's going on with the situation. And you should always balance the problem by recourse to this delegation. Let me uh, close this morning with a devotion with you from Psalm 23 that I know it's very well-traveled ground, but I want to show you how Um, it applies. And the question that we've been asking, who's the shepherd? And what am I shepherding? Who's my flock? What responsibilities have been given to me? We're trying to expose and kind of think through where we're responsible to God under, if we make it all about a relationship with God, all these matters become worship to him. It's popular to say worship is when we sing because worship has been redefined in mysticism and, uh, and, um, uh, continuationism, it's been redefined as how I feel about God in moments of getting together with people and feeling, feeling good things about God. That's been the redefinition of worship, but that's not what the Bible describes as worship. Worship is when you give to God what belongs to him. It's when you give him what he is due. And that would include praise and singing. That would include prayer. That would include attention to his word. That would include living out his word and my choices and how you teach and train and deal with your children. Uh, everything in life becomes worship when you define it biblically. And Psalm 23 has the shepherd that God has set up as the shepherd of his people Israel figuring out how to shepherd. How will the shepherd shepherd? How do you manage what God has given to you? When you think of who wrote Psalm 23, it's pretty obvious that the balance is going to be a relationship with God. The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. Who's the, who's the shepherd of the shepherd? The Lord. I've had people ask me at times, well, who do you talk to? Pastor, we talk to you. Who do you talk to? Who's the supervening organizational authority over you to to help you through what you need to help through? And yes, I had to talk to people and and process verbally, and I I do have friends that I talk with, but nobody needs to be replacing God in my life. Dwight Pentecost at Dallas Seminary, when they were starting to teach accountability groups and accountability partners in the 90s, remember accountability partners? Um, 
<laughs> he was always, um, uh, I don't know when he started being cantankerous. It might have been when he was a young man, but I knew him in his 90s. And he said, I always thought my accountability partner was the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, but, but no, but David is saying in Psalm 23 that the way he gets his leading, the way he is able to do what he needs to do is the Lord is his provider. He's sitting there, shep- I think he probably wrote this in reflection or during shepherding actual sheep. And so he's, you could just imagine he's taking care of a flock of sheep. We know that of David. We know that he wrote this. He knows what it is to shepherd. And, and so it occurs to him, no doubt inspired by the Spirit of God, that, that this is his relationship to God. Just as I am walk, watching out for these sheep and providing for them and leading them where they, need, where they need to go and providing stability when they're in trouble, that's what God does for me. He's my shepherd. The obvious conclusion is that I need to think of myself like a little sheep before a great shepherd. And what that makes me have to do is humble myself and not think it's all about me. God has a purpose for me. He's working that purpose, but it's his purpose, not my purpose. And so think about the person in the highest position of authority. That's a delegated authority from God. That shepherd over what God has entrusted has a higher shepherd. We always will. And the Lord is my shepherd. So David knows the secret of success that he taught his son Solomon that we read in the Proverbs. He knows that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He knows this is how we're going to be successful. So he is a little sheep before the great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And that concept, that idea means that it's not on me to provide for myself. It means that I'm embarrassingly incapable the capacity of the sheep to do anything useful that the shepherd does for the sheep is, 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 is non-existent. He has no ability. And that's how we are before God. Compared to God, we have nothing to bring. He is everything. And that's the way, back to your relationship with God and all the stewardships, that's the way you can manage it. It's on him. God, you, you, sometimes the prayer is, God, let me be competent Help me be competent. Maybe that's always the prayer. Father, you've given me a duty. Strengthen me. You put your Holy Spirit in me. Strengthen me to do it. In in Psalm 23, the first uh, four verses describe a shepherd with his sheep. And the shepherd provides by his leading By his direction, he provides food and good water and therefore restores the life of the sheep. Along the way, he guides the sheep where they need to go. And the the Lord guides David in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He's got a mission. It's about him. And so we're on that path. And on that path, we go through the valley of the shadow of death. In verse, verse 4, yea, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. My Bible puts a paragraph break at verse 4. Right? The, David did not put that paragraph break there. We don't have anything in manuscript tradition to do that. But I understand why they did it. But it's not right. The reason you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death is because he's leading you in the paths of righteousness. They take you right through it. You can't do the speculation thing. Well, if I'm suffering, then it must be I did something wrong. You know, it's likely you're doing something right. That you will, it's, it's guaranteed if you're doing something right that you will suffer. And so he says he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that takes me to the valley of the shadow of death, as you know. And the reason that I'm not afraid in the valley of the shadow of death is because I have all kinds of, of internal mortal, moral courage. I have, I have intestinal fortitude. I am here. And so I won't be afraid of the of the, the, the danger that lurks outside. That's not what David says. I fear no evil because you're with me. I'm, remember, I'm a little sheep. And so that's the secret to the leader. That's the secret to the one that's been delegated authority from God is that he sees God as the shepherd guiding him. It's real simple. And this is why we honor and revere humility and leadership when we see it because it resonates. That person doesn't think he's God. That person knows that God is God and he's delegated 
authority from God. I mentioned Philippians 2. Let's really close on Philippians 2. If we ask the question, uh, how does God's delegation of, of responsibility work in Philippians 2? If you ask that question and then you read it within that, from that lens, I, we're not reinterpreting Philippians. It's just the, the application is very obvious. In verse 12, Paul tells these successful uh, Macedonian believers, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's a heavy responsibility to work out. It doesn't say work for or work up. It says work out, live it out. I'm saved. I belong to God. Live it out as he just described in verses five through 11. <clears throat> work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a delegation God has given you. See, it's so easy to say, well, uh, theologically speaking, what matters is where they go to heaven or hell. And I believe in God, and I believe in Jesus, and I believe in heaven and hell, so I've trusted in Jesus as my Savior, so I'm not going to hell. And that's childish theological reasoning, and it's very common, and, and you could have you know, 70-year-old children about this, but, but I know I'm going to heaven, so it doesn't really matter what I do because you've taught me the biblical doctrine of eternal security. But Paul says nothing like that when he talks about how to live. He doesn't say take one doctrine and use it to contradict the rest of them. He says, if you have this salvation, then live it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so it doesn't contradict our eternal security, but it tells us what life is about. If I take my relationship with God out of the picture, then it's about what I get and where I'm going and what happens to me. And so I'm going to heaven. That's settled. I know God, heaven's going to be great. So until then, I'll just continue to do what I want to do with me. Now, some people will say, well, that's not really a Christian. Someone can't be a believer and think that way. But I want you to remember that when you find yourself thinking that way. Because, yes, you can be carnal. You're just not spiritual. You're just not thinking the thoughts of God. You're, you're not walking by the Spirit. You're not being filled by the Spirit. That's a carnal believer, and it's the norm of our time. And it's not normal, but it's, we live in abnormal times. He says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then verse 13 tells you the greatest of sacred delegations. For God is the one working in you, both to want, that's thelo, to want, and to do, to poieo, uh, his good pleasure. To want and to do what pleases him. It doesn't say he chooses for you. That's a misread if you take uh, verse 13 and say to will means to choose. So God works in me and he makes the choice through me. That's not what it says. It says to want. Boy, do we need help with that. But that's a, God, you've given me this awesome thing to do, but I really don't feel like doing it. I don't really want to. Well, uh, God can help you with that. God will help you. But he's the one working in you both to want and to do that which pleases him good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and dispute or disputing. Do I have to do VBS without grumbling or disputing? Yeah. Do I have to do? Do I have to uh, salt the dry the, the driveway or do I do I have to take care of every without? Yeah, everything. It's a sacred delegation. It's a blessing God's given you. So think of Him that way and reconnect the relationship. Jesus is your exemplar. To do this, Jesus is the great shepherd in Second or in First Peter chapter two. Sorry, First Peter two. He's the great shepherd and overseer of your soul, the great pastor and overseer of your soul in First uh, Peter two, right around twenty, I think, five. But he's our exemplar. Have this thinking in yourselves in Philippians two five, which was also in Christ Jesus who although existed in the form, the very essence of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but it emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. The humility Jesus exhibits before his Father, this is how we deal with the higher authority. And it's how that we are able to carry out the tasks that the higher authority has delegated to us. So we're humble before him. We've got that most important stewardship in mind.
The most important stewardship is your relationship with God. And it doesn't mean that I'm just doing my God relationship stuff and not dealing with people or work or, or the other things. It's that my God relationship is directing my hands as I obey him in the spirit in how I treat people and what I do at work and how I'm dealing with my health or my body and how I'm thinking about my life. It isn't a separate category. I once knew a guy, he said his brother got hung up on a talk radio show. It was on for three hours a day from noon till three. And he couldn't do anything else with his life because he was addicted to that show and he couldn't get a job, couldn't get his life going. He really couldn't get it started because he was so focused he had to hear his little radio show. We get hung up on all kinds of things. We live between two giant casinos. People are very uh, easily taken in. <laughs> taken in, that's a good way to say it. But taken in by this, uh, this addiction to gambling. There are other addictions associated. and you know, We have all kinds of things people get hung up with. And so what's my point? Well, you can make my time in the Bible such a thing that you don't actually do what the Bible says that you're supposed to be learning with other people with the other things. Now, I would not say that, well, if it's a choice between, you know, um, people and God's word that I'll pick people every time. I wouldn't say that. I would say, God, give me a chance to get around your word so that it can be useful to you with people. And Jesus is our great example. Jesus would deal with people until uh, they were all full and fed. The disciples were like, oh, we can't work anymore. And Jesus says, no, we're just getting started. And he sends them all away. But then he will find time and go up on the mountain and talk to his father. He always found time for that relationship, even though it was feeding all the other things that he had to do. So my challenge to you as we're thinking today is the balance the, the stewardships, balance all the responsibilities with first things first and let that kind of clear your head. If it fails at work, I'm with God and he's got me and it's God, let me fail in a way that's pleasing to you if that's what I have to do. Maybe you've experienced having to fail before. Maybe you've had a project that you thought it was going to go this way and then it just didn't go this way. I've had some of that in, in, in various experiences. God, I'm with you. You're with me. It's your project. Make, make of it what you want. And I'm not saying you don't apply diligence. I'm saying that's the attitude that you approach it and you trust him. Our Father, we thank you for the balance that you provide as we think about our lives because we have a relationship with you that's fed by your special revelation, by our prayer life as we talk to you about what you've revealed. And we thank you that, um, that life takes on its focus, its purpose, its meaning, its usefulness as we consider your opinion of our choices. Father, we get so confused and hung up on the here and now. We get worried about what's going on in the moment with the various details of life, we forget what it's all really for. And I pray that you'll keep our eyes on your son, keep our eyes fixated on our relationship with you, on your word and how it feeds that relationship so that we're useful to you in all these various areas. Father, don't let us dither in anxiety, but humbling ourselves before you, let us rest in the truth that you have a purpose and a plan for all of these decisions. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.